He went into hiding. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And he gives the reason for all of the teaching, all of the things he has said up to this point. He says, these things that I have said to you, that in me you may have peace. Here's a promise. Here's a certainty. Here's an expectation. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. You know, we try to avoid it and we try to move around it, but it's appointed that a man wants to die and then the judgment. Uh, some are suffering from illnesses today. There's a reality of living in a cursed world. And in a world that is hostile, the world itself is hostile to God. But, here's the hope, but take heart. He said, I've said these things that you might have peace, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, and I'll repeat this, these passages again, Jesus said, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they, those that you've given him, that they may know that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth and have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's obvious to us that Jesus is making a transition from chapter 16, from speaking directly to his disciples about the Father and himself, to speaking to the Father about his disciples. His heart is revealed in both his teaching and his praying. His praying. He explicitly tells them, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. They, like us, by faith, believe him when he says, I have overcome the world. Or you don't. And we frust we're frustrated and we're fearful about those things that are about to take place. He says, I've overcome the world, so take heart in times of tribulation. As we are gathered here today, some of you are living with the pain of family conflicts. Some in the pain of financial uncertainty. And some in actual physical pain. This is not to mention the trend of the world around us growing in antagonism towards Christianity. That's one of the things that if we don't fear, we should be at least aware of the hostility around us. This sermon is supposed to be about the heart of God and not about our struggles. But you can't separate the two. We have a high priest who came and suffered so that he might sympathize with our needs. And not only sympathize, but he might meet us in our time of needs. To the eavesdropping disciples, Jesus' words did, take on, did not take on their full significance until after the resurrection and until the Holy Spirit brought these things to remembrance. Now, I, I might suggest until we face suffering or persecution or have gone through some trial, that we may not fully understand or appreciate the import of these words. We had testimony in our Sunday school class of an individual who said, I have gone through a dark period in my life. The waves of life and the storms of life almost overcame me, and yet the Lord spoke to me. 
That's the reason we have to have a treasury of God's word in our hearts so that these, in times of need and suffering, we can't go start looking up verses for comfort. We need that comfort within us that the Holy Spirit might comfort us. But the whole purpose of this comfort, the whole turning of this to God as our help, is that He might, we might see His glory. The same Jesus <clears throat> who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit, is again dressing His Father while watching disciples look on. Three times Jesus uses the word glory. <clears throat> he also uses three times the word glorify and twice the word past tense glorified. Glory, glorify, and glorified. We all acknowledge the concept of the glory of God. We've spoken about it this morning. I can't remember what context, but somebody quoted the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what is the glory of God? And how do we glorify Him? Two things concerning the glory that are distinct and yet inseparable from each other. First, there is the inherent glory of God. That which He is and all that He is. And then secondly, there is the glorifying or ascribing to God the glory that is there. It's a recognition, it's a proclaiming, uh, an apprehension of the glory that's there. I looked up on, online, that's our, that's our new commentary, not really. But just different definitions of glory. Let me just give you a few of them. These are from all reputable sources. God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of all his many perfections. The glory of God, this, that's the Gospel Coalition, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. There's two that mention his perfections. That's desiring God's ministry. God's glory is God's weightiness in wonderful qualities such as might, beauty, and goodness. And then finally, the glory of God is the invisible qualities, characters, or attributes of God displayed in a visible, knowable way. We speak of the glory of God because he has displayed his glory in the world that he has created. He's displayed his glory in creation, and he's displayed his glory in redemption. God's glory, this is my definition, summary, God's glory is all that he is, for he is glorious. It is the independent and infinite quality of his perfect person, his perfect character, and his perfect actions. He proposed, he planned, and by his word brought into existence out of nothing all that we see and know. He created us in his own image with the ability to think, to know, to love, and delight in his world, his gifts, and in himself. We speak of the glory of God, but there's a part of that, the chief end of man, and it's to enjoy God forever. I said too much in Sunday school, but I wanted to say 
We look to eternity, but we need to bring eternity into the present. It's the now and it's not the not yet, but God is present with us here in His person of His Holy Spirit. And there is much about God to be enjoyed. Much about His salvation, much about His church, much, much about our brothers and sisters. When we think of His gifts, maybe take a moment to wonder at the five senses that He's given us. We take it for granted a lot of times. We don't think about it perhaps as much as we often do, though we enjoy those senses. He has given us the ability to see the majesty of an autumn sunset or a bird in flight. He has given us the ability to hear that we might delight in the song of a bird and the rhythm of a gentle rain or the roar of thunder. He has gifted us with touch that we might delight in the sun on our face the warmth of a handshake, or the comfort of an affectionate hand on our shoulder. He's gifted us with a sense of smell that we might delight, <clears throat> uh, that we might delight in a flower or bread baking. He's given us a sense of taste that we might savor and taste that bread that we have just baked. The psalmist in 137, he, when he describes all that God is in his glory and his wonder, his omniscience and his omnipresence and his creativity, he says, he could only say, respond by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain to it. Keeping with our sermon, David was delighting in the glory of God that had been revealed to him in the created world and I would suggest to you in his relationship with that God through the Word of God. There's not an individual with their abilities and inabilities that he does not bring about the circumstances and events of their lives for his eternal, eternal purposes. That's each of us. Every one of us. We may deny it. We may live outside of that reality or that sense of knowledge. But God is in control of every event. He gave you the abilities. And he didn't give you the abilities that perhaps you want. But he's in control of every aspect of your life. He is the architect of all things. But he's also the administrator. He is active. He is working in the world today to bring about his purposes and his plans. Believing or unbelieving, apprehending or not, ascribing glory to God or cursing at the thought of him. God is using all of these things for his glory. Now we're limited by what we see in the circumstances, by time and by space. We can't see the infinite. We can't see beyond the veil. We can't see the end from here, but we are taught in his words that he will bring all things. He will roll them up like a scroll, the things that we know, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and he will be the center. The lamb and the father will be the center. They will be the temple. They will be the light. They will be the all in all. And we'll worship him with unveiled eyes. We'll no longer see these things dimly, but we will see him face to face. What disciples and we learn from this prayer is that Jesus shares along with God the Holy God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, this same inherent glory. Because he says, when I come back to you in your presence, glory, this inherent glory. Uh, we see Jesus as he has been uh, in the ignominy of the shame of the cross. He's asking for his Father to glorify him in this hour. Bring glory to, you, to me, 
show that what seems to be the end, what seems to be the ultimate tragedy, what seems to be the dashing of the hopes of his disciples is actually glorious and wonderful because it will restore fallen men and women to the eternal God to dwell and live with him forever. He their God and they his people. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians and he says, he, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, now this is speaking much later than we're, uh, well, not later than what John is writing, but He's, he's describing this has taken place. Jesus' prayer has been answered. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Yahweh. He's the eternal God. He is the great I Am. And he's declared this, he says that glorify me that I might glorify you. It's the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he is exalted so that to the glory of the God the Father. The writer to the Hebrews says concerning Jesus, the eternal Son of God and the eternal Word of God, that God has appointed him the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In making purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of creation, all of redemption, all of justification, all of sanctification, adoption, reconciliation, and restoration, this is the glory of the glorious God. As you can see, it's impossible for us temple creatures to get our minds and our hearts around the infinitude of God's glory. Though we can see the glory and majesty of God's creation, our hearts and our minds have been limited in their abilities to comprehend all the glory of God by our creatureliness. We are bound by time and space and we live in a world, the lingering influence of the fall. Perhaps modernity has dulled us to the transcendence of God. Those psalmists were people of the earth. I, 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 can, I can't help but picture David tending his sheep and looking up at the vastness of that Middle Eastern sky and seeing the stars, no, no city lights to dim it, but in all of its glory and all of its wonder, and, and just thinking of the majesty of the one who put these things into existence. The very conversation we're having this morning is pure foolishness to our neighbors who correspond to the Greeks that Paul refers to in his letter to the Corinthians and to those religious and political inclinations uh, of those around us. To the Greeks, this gospel this truth, this Jesus, this God, is, is foolishness. What omnipotent God dies on a cross? You've heard the sermons many times. Uh, uh, 
So it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But it is a wonderful story. Oh, my illustration. Years ago, we had some Jewish friends. We made friends with some Jewish people, and we had them over, and we had the opportunity to share the gospel. And this was a statement. That's a wonderful story. Who wouldn't want to believe it? But we're Jewish. And so to us, it's an impossibility. With God, nothing is impossible. But apart from God, we would not understand. We would not under apprehend. We would not appreciate our crucified and raised Savior, the one who has ascended and now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. This, these things are spiritually discerned. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled veiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We just read, read that. Jesus is teaching him, don't lose heart. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, Paul's talking about teaching, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he goes on to talk about his gospel. And he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. As in their case, the God of the wor this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he ties together the Creator and the Redeemer in salvation. For he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness in the creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life. It's not to know about him. It's not to know all of the facts that the church and the preachers and the teachers and the pundits have mentioned about him. But it's to know him. It's to know him in an intimate and a covenantal way. To know him as Lord and Savior. Every, every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord. Now is the time to confess that he is Savior. At that time, it will be too late. Everybody will acknowledge. They will have to acknowledge. He will reveal himself, and the sons of glory will be revealed, and they will can't do anything other than say, this is the eternal God, and they will fall before him, not in heartfelt worship, but in, in shame, and, uh, shame and guilt. So today is the day of the offer of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. It is here in this verse that we see the power of creation and the power of regeneration connected. He has caused us. He has gifted us with new life uh, in himself by the work of the Holy Spirit. God has given Jesus in these verses two things. He has given him authority and a people to whom Jesus has given eternal life. Notice what the eternal life is. We say again, 
knowing the only true God and Jesus who he has sent. I just want to take a minute to focus on this because this is important. How, let me ask this question. How much authority does Jesus have in your life? How much authority? What, 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 what do I mean? That I mean that he is the Lord. He is the director. Now, he has authority, but do you acknowledge, do you recognize, do you accept, do you delight in his authority in every aspect of life? Whether it's work or leisure or pleasure or church or whatever. We can come to church and, as Jesus said, uh, you worship me with your mouths, but your hearts are far from me. He has authority. We acknowledge and we submit to it. Disciples, the disciples early had heard Jesus use these words. In chapter 10, he tells them, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up. He's, he goes on uh, in, to express that this is a volitional thing. This is a choice that he has made willingly in obedience to accomplish the Father's purposes in sending him into the earth. And he uses this word here. He says, I have authority or power to lay down my life and I have a power and authority to take it up again. Later on, after chapter 10, <laughs> other disciples, apostles record for us that Jesus appeals uh, uh, to the authority. Uh, Jesus says to them, the, excuse me, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. So we have the authority of Christ in his death. We have the authority of Christ uh, to give the gospel to those that the Father has given him. And then we are participants in that. Based on his authority, on his power, he sends us out to a lost and dying world. And then he makes to make disciples, to baptize them, to make disciples, to teach them all that he's commanded. And the blessedness of it is he says, and I who have all authority am with you to the ends of the earth. So there is the ascribing of glory to the Father by the Son and the ascribing of the glory to to the Son by the Father. This is the present work of the Holy Spirit to give us new hearts that can see, believe, and serve our most glorious Savior. Jesus is on the threshold of his ascension into heaven, in the presence of God to take to in the, and to the presence of God to take his rightful place at God's right hand. Here he will pick up the work as a high priest, making intercession for us constantly. Let's pray. My gracious God and Father, as we said, these, these thoughts are too high. For, how can we begin to comprehend that which is infinite, a love that is infinite, a purity that is infinite and complete? And yet, Father, we this morning by your grace ascribe glory to you. Amen. I'll ask you to stand with me one more time and turn to 55, 55.
Arianic blessing. But I want to put it in its context and see the effectualness of it. So we'll read the verse before and the verse after. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them.